Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode four of Spill the OT podcast. And today we are going to be talking to Toby, and she is a relatively new graduate. She graduated about a year and a half ago. And she's going to be speaking to not just her experiences as a new grad, but also um, in her current field, which is in inpatient rehab. So she has quite a bit to say. Uh, I also loved that she was a really open book. I was able to talk to her pretty candidly about salary, student loans, and not only did she give me kind of a ballpark, she gave us like exact figures, and she was just seriously a delight to talk to. So I think you'll love this interview, and let's get her on the line. Hi, my name is Toby. I'm an occupational therapist. I work in um, inpatient subacute rehab, and I am right now the main OTR on the fourth floor brain injury unit. And I'm still a new grad, so <laughs> I'm still considered a new grad. So it was, a, it was a learning curve, but it's a really exciting job. I love it. Awesome. So did you start off in inpatient rehab, or were you somewhere else? Um, actually... Because of my area, I live in um, I live in a state that's very um, saturated with OTRs and CODAs right now. So I really didn't have a pick of what I wanted, um, and I lucked out because I worked for this hospital prior to me even going to college. So because um, it's really sometimes it's really it's really hard to get into a hospital, and that's something I kind of wanted to even talk about, unless you know someone. Um, hospitals and big like facilities like that are typically like very picky and I remember when I had my interview at first I wanted to do it by myself I didn't want to name drop or I my um, resume out there for months and it wasn't until like I did know um, some of the people that I work with they were like you know let me just you know put a bug in someone's ear let them know that you applied and when I did my interview um, when she was looking at my looking for my resume, she scrolled down a ton of people. I mean, the process that when she would even or ever get to my name before I was hired, it's not um, it's not an easy process. So it really helps to know someone in the hospital, or to know someone that could mention your name to one of the um, HR uh, representatives. That's really good to know. I know yeah. I live up in the New England area, and it's very flooded right here. Mm-hmm. I think we have like eight. OT programs within um, like 100 miles? I got my degree. I was in New England. Um, I went to Bath Path University. Yeah, that's one of like eight. <laughs> <laughs> but I lived in Pennsylvania, so that's why I'm here in Pennsylvania. <laughs> but I agree. I think that it's pretty flooded. I went to school in Maryland, and there was only one school that offered an OTR program. So when I first began working, I worked in that area and it really wasn't flooded. We were actually in pretty Mm -hmm. high demand and could negotiate our salary a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I really struggled getting my first job. And um, I, to the point where I was going through, you know, recruiters and they'll call you left and right. And, you know, a lot of them will tell you that well, you're a new grad, you don't have any work experience. They're trying to fill their perspective as mainly they're going to have SNPs. I'm not saying um, travel therapy and stuff is a bad thing or anything like that necessarily. It's just that if you have a certain setting in mind, 
getting into a hospital, even through a record, um, a recruiter is, is also tough <laughs> because if you think about it, when they are looking into hiring someone to fill a contract or a 13 week contract, or even sometimes permanent positions, they usually have to be a place that's not really saturated. If you're going to get into a hospital, cause I was offered something in like rural Pennsylvania, which would, and they were um, also offering me room and board and stuff like that, but I wasn't really um, okay with um, just picking up and moving just yet um, and I was the only job I was able to go through is like a skilled nursing facility which I worked there for three months how was your experience? I, yeah. I I love the fact that you really get to build a rapport with the residents and your patients because that is also their home however um, skilled nursing homes are very usually understaffed um, it depends on I guess the area and location as to um, sometimes how good of a skilled nursing home you might be in contact with, with if you're in a more um, low income area, there are not that much resources for that skilled nursing facility. So a lot of the OTs are kind of having to be very creative on the fly and making things work with the amount of funding they have access to. Hey everybody, I am so genuinely excited to tell you about MedBridge. So MedBridge is a continuing ed site and they have tons of continuing ed courses all available online. You can stream them at your own pace. They also have home exercise plans, which are incredible. You can literally build your own plan with pictures that can perfectly suit whatever client you're working for. It's honestly so awesome. And you get unlimited CEUs. And these CEU courses are just really intriguing and exciting. Like it's, I've done continuing ed online in the past and these ones that they select are just very much in line with what I find interesting. And I feel like you might find them interesting as well. So are you struggling with finding the resources for your time for CEUs with almost 2000 accredited evidence-based streaming courses, live CEU webinars, MedBridge is your all-in-one solution. And actually, if you use my code, it's spill the OT, capital S, capital T, capital OT. So spill the OT, one word, capital S, capital T, capital OT. You can get $175 off of your year-long subscription, which is awesome. I mean, that's like significant amount of money off. So if you are interested, please go check it out. Again, use the code spill the OT, capital S, capital T, capital OT, all one word. All right. I really hope that you go check it out. Enjoy. But it sounds like you have a better experience where you are now. Oh, yes. Because of productivity, <laughs> which is something I, I, I wish my <laughs> professors really indulged in what is the difference even working, what is the view of working with something at a 90% productivity versus an 85% productivity? It, there's such a difference with just that, like, um, I would say that amount of percentage in between. Um, and there was also, I wish they talked about like rug levels more uh, because uh, when you go work at a skilled nursing home and someone's on a rug le high rug level, um, and I've heard other DULRs are very, very flexible and they listen to their therapists about, because um, we would do the course of evaluations and 
if you have a really good communication set with your DUR, you, um, DOR, you should be able to be like, you know what, hey, I don't think this person is a high rug level kind of person. I don't think they're going to tolerate 120 minutes of therapy. I think probably 30 minutes, probably two times a week or three times a week would be beneficial to them. And if you have a good rapport and like, I guess, a good teamwork dynamic, then it's not bad. However, I know that there's some um, DORs that will want to put almost everyone on a high rug level because we get they get reimbursed through that. And sometimes you, I learned really quickly as a new grad, because you don't want to step on anyone's toes, and you also want to make sure you're doing a good job, but you have to end up advocating for your um, for your patients to your boss. <laughs> And that's not easy to do. <laughs> no, it's not. as a new grad, when you're still learning to just take directions in the first place, yes, it's a difficult spot to be in. Yes, um, and I would just encourage anyone who feels like they are not really being able to communicate their needs and concerns. At the end of the day, it's your license. Um, at the end of the day, you know, you are, you know, you made it that far to be a therapist and you have um, the amount of um, education behind you to know when something's not appropriate or not. So, you know, it's okay to, I mean, they can't, I won't say they will like, uh, that there'll be, you know, consequences for you saying no, but you can suggest like, hey, I do not feel comfortable as a clinician, as a professional treating someone for 120 minutes when they are clearly not tolerating that. If you would like to give this person and like uh, put them on another caseload, um, I'm just gonna write off my recommendation as is. So they know that you wrote off your professional recommendations as why they're not you know, tolerating 120 minutes. And if your DUR chooses to pass that on to someone else, your butt's kind of covered. And I would definitely talk, if you know your DUR is gonna push that onto another therapist, I'll definitely put a bug in there or like, Hey, this is what I found. It, that's why it really, it really helps to have a mentor. Uh, I was not so lucky to have a mentor when I started out in the SNF, um, only because the way they structured it, they're like, yes, there's a mentor, but that mentor is like facility, and she can meet with you once every so often. Yeah. And I feel like it's very important to have a mentor on site. <laughs> with you so you'd be like hey I at this moment I have no idea what I'm doing well of course you do but you know of course you need to build up that confidence and stuff like that but it's okay to be like I'm lost <laughs> what would you suggest you know yeah. um, it's great to bounce off ideas with someone you know has more experience especially when dealing with um people with Amanda there are tricks of the trade that only comes with like <laughs> Uh, years of experience of how to approach someone who's um, having a lot of sensory issues or is agitated in a way. There's different ways to apply it, especially in person. I mean, you could read books about like de-escalating like patients, but until you're like in the moment <laughs> of it, it, it um, really, uh, it, it really makes a difference. Which is, I, I deal with agitated patients right now in the brain injury unit, especially with um, patients going up the rancho levels. Can you speak a little bit more about your current job? Yes. Uh, so I'm in an inpatient hospital, a rehab hospital. So we get people who are, um, who are medically stable from acute care. Usually when they come to us, they've probably never had a shower. Um, in acute care, they don't do um, showers. Their main objective is to keep someone alive. <laughs> So that's what I, I say that to my family members who are concerned. They're like, oh my God, he hasn't had a shower in like 
months and everything like that. I'm like, well, in acute care, they just kind of want to keep that person medically stable. I think that's their main objective. And I always, you know, talk to my patients. The good thing is here that come hell or high water, you will be in a shower. <laughs> now, it won't be the typical shower you're used to, but um, there are many um, adaptive equipment that we use, uh, special chairs that we use to make it possible for that person to have a shower again. So how many hours is somebody getting a day in inpatient? In inpatient rehab, everyone's required to have three hours of therapy daily. Um, they have a week that starts their technical, like their start of the week is when they're admitted. And within that full week, they have to have 15 hours of therapy. Okay. Now that could be spread out through the weekend if they come later in the week, or if we're planning for them to miss a day of therapy because they're out for appointments. We can usually spread it out. They may have therapy on the weekend. So imagine, you know, you, you know, you walk in to a person's room and they can't talk, they can't speak, and then you have to be the first person to transfer them out of bed. That, that happens. Too. <laughs> um, which is why I love that when I started my inpatient, uh, when I started my orientation process, there's a spinal cord injury unit, there's the stroke unit, and then there's a brain injury unit. They have you spend one month on each floor with a mentor from, um, from uh, with an OT mentor from that floor specifically until you land, you land on the floor that they, you know, after everyone talks, cause he talks to all the people who are your mentor and we kind of, um, you and your supervisor talk about what you feel comfortable with and the team comes together with the people who are mentoring you. They say like, Hey, she really shine this area. She'll be good at this floor. And then, they make a decision and you end up on that floor. <laughs> oh, that's a really nice approach because then you know as a treating therapist that the team voted you in kind of. Yeah, yeah. Which that's was, it was kind of nerve-wracking because I was like, they think I can handle a brain injury. <laughs> and the reason why, because you're like, you were really good with your agitated patient. And, um, and I... I would say it's not it's not an easy job to, you know, in a way have an agitated patient who's also very confused at the same time. I mean, there there are very there's a lot of funny stories that you just kinda have to laugh about and you have to take in the notion that this person cannot really, you know, make good and formal decisions by themselves and the things that are coming out of their mouths are not coming from a place of reason. So <laughs> Sometimes That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So there was a one patient who was very agitated and did not want anyone in his room. He was throwing things. The one thing I, I do love about my team, all as the nursing as well as doctors and stuff like that, they will not put you in a dangerous situation. Um, whenever someone's very agitated or whenever someone's um experiencing a lot of like you know, um distress in that form there's always a one-to-one -one there. So that person is usually a second, hand of, um, hand, uh, set of, second set of hands, or there's a second person around the corner just listening in. The thing about when it comes to agitation is sometimes the more cooks in the kitchen, the worse it gets. <laughs> so you always want to approach that person and um, that patient with the mindset of, the, the first objective is not just, okay, I have to get an evaluation done. I need to see them put on clothes. My the, the first thing you walk in was like, you know what, let me establish some type of rapport. But if you're looking at this from that person's perspective, they woke up in a hospital. They have no idea 
who the, and they don't have no idea who anyone is, but everyone seems to know them. It's yeah. not like Twilight Zone. So now you're not, and your family's not there. You don't know how to call anyone. So I was like, really? That must be very hard. And I said, you know, tell me, tell me a little about that. I, did, I, I started as, you know, I'm establishing a rapport with you because I'm on your side. Because I am. And the whole team is on that patient's side for the benefit of their safety, for the benefit of their cognitive health, and for them to be um, doing things functionally again. So when you are viewed as like, okay, someone's listening to me, and this whole craziness, like you're the first person's listening to me, then you can establish like when they're sitting, how are they sitting? Are they leaning? Are they, when they're talking, are they confabulating words? Are words coming on the clearly harder vision? Can they see you from where you're sitting in the room? When you stand up and you walk to the other side of the room, can their eyes track you? So yes, you're having this conversation with this person, but you're noticing a lot of things. Um, I may not do a, a manual muscle test on that person, depending on how agitated it is, but if they can reach out to the cabinet and be like, hey, you know what, aren't you cold? I feel cold. And they just put on a shirt. And that's because you established a conversation with them, they're like, yeah, I am cold. I'm going to put on a shirt. If I see them reach and for that shirt or the scrub top, they're a three plus. <laughs> and I will document patient demonstrates being at a three plus with functional use of arms during evaluation unable to assess formerly due to agitation. You sound like an excellent therapist. I feel like a lot of people should take pointers from you. Thank you. I, I just honestly always try to put my shoes in the patient's shoes. If I woke up and I had no idea what was going on, the first thing I would not want anyone to do is try to establish rules and boundaries with me when I feel like I'm out of control. Like I have no control of what's what what's do what's going on. Because sometimes the patients are waking up in the same place and you know it's not their home. But someone's telling them when to eat, when to go to bed, when to use the bathroom. There's very few things they have control over. Um, and that can be very frustrating. Well, I can understand why the team voted you to be on their floor because it sounds like you have a really good outlook. And oh, I think people can learn from you because not many people think of it in that way. So I think you're pretty special yeah. about that. Oh, thank you. How long do your patients stay with you? My patients typically, right now I have a guy that's probably going to stay about a week. <laughs> okay. I have a guy that's going to stay about a week versus someone I've kept, I think I've, the longest I've kept someone on our caseload is close to six months. Okay. So, um, a pretty extreme example? Um, not really, because I've, it depends on how they come in functionally. But it's, it's typical to get a longer stay in brain injury. So it all depends on how they functionally come. I want to change gears a little bit. Can you okay. tell us about your schedule? Like what time mm -hmm. do you usually get there? Do you have to clock out? Salary? <laughs> yeah. Um, I am salary. And I think as a new grad, salary is salary it depends it depends on you as a person but if you're an abstract thinker and you spend a lot more time being deep trying to put in details or you you know yourself as a worker and as an organized person that's what makes the difference between whether you should be salary or look for an hourly job okay so the reason why i think that is because i i i'm the kind of person that i i know myself i'm not leaving exactly at the eight hours i stay only because I'm 
always double checking my work. I'm always um, putting a lot more detail than I probably should be putting. But I like to make sure that I'm thorough. And I really am not a fan of doing notes while I'm with a patient. And the thing about also being brain injury is like, you know, you can't set many patients up. You can't be like, all right, you know, do it um, three times, like um, three times 10 of this and, you know, everything like that and expect them to do the exercise. Like you have to be one-to-one -one with that patient or they'll just end up staring at whatever task you give, <laughs> you give them and that's not therapeutic either. So yeah. I, I also don't have the luxury of setting people up. <laughs> so how long do you think you're realistically there for? On a typical day? On a typical day, probably like nine hours. Probably like nine, nine to ten hours. Now, however, there are very good therapists with time management and orientation with like all the stuff that leave exactly at like 3 30. I personally just not one of those people. It's definitely possible. Because I was at a sniff and that was hourly. And when you're starting out, there's a lot more getting used to paperwork. There's a lot of getting used to documentation that goes in. It's a learning curve and you don't really feel comfortable within like probably three months. And that's just with documentation. That's not with like treatments and stuff like that. And you, you're typically, when you start your first job, you're going to spend longer than what you, what you, what you would think a typical therapist might spend like the standard eight hours. Yeah. Okay, so how long did it take you to get your OT education? I was on a five-year track um, because uh, I had an accelerated program from Bay Path University, which was, honestly, if I could do it again, I wouldn't do the accelerated track. I didn't have a senior year, as to put it, as um, an undergrad. And my last senior year, um, and my undergrad, I was tip I was a graduate. I was a graduate taking graduate courses. So all the typical senior celebrations and stuff like that, I wasn't really part of. And there is a different mindset when you're going into a graduate program with people on their third or fourth degree, and um, and you're like still, it's it's a totally different mindset. Um, and it it can be kind of a it can be kind of a struggle finding your own place. Um, especially when you're so young, knowing what you want, do you want to, because when you, when you graduate and you start, like, you, it's a full-time job, it's a, you're thrown into being an adult and stuff like that. There were a lot of people who gave me advice, they're like, you know what, you don't have to start working right away, but I'm not saying that because I don't want you to, you know, really take time and enjoy it, because when you're, when you start, you start, you just go in there. How much money approximately was the program for all five years? The good thing about this program is that your last year was, um, since you started with them, you got a grant that covered your last year. The whole year? Yes. Oh, that's excellent. So you're essentially paying for a four-year degree. Roughly about like $60,000. Okay. That's really not bad. I've interviewed quite a few people and most people, they're at like the 100, 120 range. So yeah. Did you have scholarships at all? Yes. Um, I did have a scholarship because I was a first time college. Um, I was a first time uh, family member going to college. I think right now, if you Google salary for an occupational therapist, it says like $86,000 is the I mean. wish. <laughs> I don't know a single OT who makes that much money. <laughs> I'm not even close. 
honestly, I, I I wish I wish that was the truth because then <laughs> well, I also I work for a a nonprofit hospital, so I went in there. I wanted I was going there for the experience because I love the environment. I like um so the teamwork ethic like I it it far outweighed the amount of money that I was making mm-hmm. um but the thing is I guess right now what everyone's saying the real money's in like home care home health yeah I haven't interviewed anybody who's done that yet but would would you mind sharing you don't have to give your salary but mm-hmm. could you give like an approximation of where your salary sits at an inpatient you have you know, I don't mind giving my salary only because like knowledge is power. And um, if someone going into this um, field wants to know realistically how much they're going to be offered, then I'd rather help out with that. And then also knowing how much they should request for <laughs> versus. Yeah, I, in there. I love that you said that because I feel like as women, we really don't talk about it a whole lot. And then mm-hmm. we don't stand up for what we deserve. And I remember when I first got out of school, um, I was an OTR and there was a PTA and he was making the same amount of money as me. Mm, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> it just, I feel like you're right. Knowledge is power. I ended up requesting and advocating for more when I, when they gave me my first, I believe 50, 50, $56,000. $56, so I, I remember I was like, um, no, <laughs> What what it says online <laughs> is that it was close to seventy thousand, <laughs> and they're like, oh, "Where are you finding this?" I was like, "It's it's out there. It's it's out there for this range and work." And they told me, "Well, we accept. We just accepted the OT, and she accepted that offer, so we can't go any higher than that." Loved every single person I was working with at the skilled nursing, so like the PTAs, the OTs, we all worked together as a team. It was great. So we felt comfortable sharing and talking about salary. Because the thing is, what they make, they want to make it seem like you're going to get in trouble for sharing your um, information, salary information, but you cannot get in trouble for that. They do make it sound that way. I remember taking a job as a travel therapist, and they told me flat out I was not allowed to share my salary with the people who work there full time. Yeah, that, that, is, that is an outward lie. That's just how they want to keep people within their certain salary ranges and keep people from asking for more money. I learned that through my own research and other people telling me, like, that's a lie. And plus, you empower your other coworkers by sharing. So they can also make the much money as they deserve. In reality, they're not going to be mad at you for making more money. They're going to be mad at the company for lowballing them. Now that you're at the inpatient rehab? It was around the same amount. I think right now I'm making 57 because um, I've been working there for about a year. Would you say that you found your niche or do you think you're still in the process of figuring out? I'm still really in the process of figuring out what I like only because I feel like inpatient rehab is because it's very, it's very physically demanding. <laughs> it, is. it takes a lot out of your body doing these transfers because you, you should get them on the mat to do trunk control and you, you need to get them started like, you know, square one with all of that and Doing that for a while is going to be demanding on your body physically. All right. Two more questions. Say money wasn't a factor and you knew that you couldn't fail. What career would you go into? It's impossible to fail. You could do anything. 
I would go into, <laughs> I would go into like making adaptive. This is why I loved. I said I was also into coding, but I would want to make like adaptive equipment for people who are um, wheelchair bound or you know bound to a wheelchair to access different. Um, things within their home, like making a home completely wheelchair or functional independent for someone who can't move their arms or someone who just has, I gave vision to like, you know, move things and work stuff in their house. Like I would want to do that. Like make that person like, home again, independent for them. They don't need help to access anything. And everything is totally accessible. Like that's what, if I could not fail, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Actually, you can do that. Do you know much about assistive technology? I want to get into it, but I heard that um, it's, I guess there's a, I guess the, to be ATP certified that um, it's a lot. <laughs> Someone told me it was a lot. Yeah, I actually have it. I work as an oh. assistive technology <laughs> um, in a school and we can talk sometime. It's not so bad. Awesome. All right. <laughs> My last question for you is what's one piece of advice for somebody who is a new grad OT? When you go for an interview, ask to talk to an OT that's, you know, on a separate occasion, like ask to talk to an OT that works there and be honest with that OT and be like, you know, what are the things that you dislike and then dislike here? And then ask them, would you recommend I work here and why? And I think you should go from what they and what they say, go from your gut as to where to stay or not to stay or to pursue that. Money isn't everything. That's it for me. Is there anything else that you want to share with people? Um, if you're still in school right now, tell your professors you want to do so much. <laughs> you want to do so much transfer, <laughs> so many transfers, and tell your professor to not hold back and have people who are going to be totally dependent and pushers. They'll know exactly, if I say pushers, they'll know exactly what that means because I, I, would, I will tell you this, um, because I did not have that much training and um, everything, uh, I did get hurt on the job. Um, and it was because you, the only way you can really learn how to really feel comfortable doing transfers by doing transfers, mm -hmm. I would say. But if you don't have that much experience with body mechanics and you don't have a second person to guard you and stuff like that, like, you know, of course, don't do it. Don't, don't, you don't have to prove anything to anyone else. If they say that, you know, you, oh, I transferred that person myself, X, Y, and Z, like, no, you are there to make sure you're safe and that patient's safe. Well, thank you so much for coming on here. No problem. Thank you for allowing me to share my story. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you for being so patient while I figure out the equipment. I fully realize that these interviews are a little bit choppy. Uh, I am working on a zero-budget platform right now. I'm literally just recording from my MacBook Air. So the interviews, I know, are not perfect. But I just really want to get this content out to everybody and share these, these thoughts and ideas. So thanks for your patience. And um, unfortunately, the end of the conversation with Toby got a little bit cut off. But I just thought she was a wealth of information. And she had some really good perspectives as a new grad, but also um, working in a sniff and then ultimately in inpatient rehab. Okay, so please follow us at Spill the OT 
on Instagram and Spill the OT Podcast group on Facebook. You can also email me at spilltheot at gmail.com. All right, see you next week.